Good morning. My name is Jim, and it's my privilege to read to you out of the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 32 through 41. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and, all, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of our Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you. My name is Jonathan Mosier. Uh, it is my privilege to open up the word uh, for you and with you this morning. And so turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And if you're not already there, uh, you will need a Bible this morning. We're going to do a lot of jumping around. Um, we have a lot to look at, a big topic this morning. And so go ahead and open this up to Acts chapter 2. Um, we're continuing on in our series um, that really is working to establish the foundations uh, of our church. And really, not just of our church here locally at Disciples Church, but what is the foundation of the church scripturally? And so this morning's, te- this morning's text is, uh, is familiar probably for a few reasons. One, it's a very familiar passage of Scripture. Uh, and two, I preached on it two weeks ago. All right, So I'm not going to recycle that sermon. Um, I promise I won't. Um, but, but as we're looking at this uh, this morning, we're looking at a different element than what we dealt with a couple weeks ago. What we were talking about then was the birth of the church. And so if you'll remember, uh, we, we were talking about Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit had come, that this was really the birth of the church. It's the foundation of the bride of Christ. And then last week we talked about uh, the idea that the church is made up of those who are converted, of those who know Jesus Christ, who've experienced salvation, who've had their lives transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of Christ, uh, talking about what it is to actually be a Christian. And what we said ultimately is that the church is made up of those who know Jesus Christ. And so this morning we're continuing on in that theme and discussing the idea that the church is made up of those as well who've been baptized. And so if, you, if, you've, um, if you've been around, you've heard us talk a lot about the elements of, of what make up a church, but this is one of the things that the Bible puts foundationally, right at the core of what the church is and what the church does, is baptism. So baptism 
is one of two ordinances that we recognize as the church. Now, depending on how you grew up, you may know the ordinances as sacraments. Those words can largely be used interchangeably. They mean a slightly different thing, but uh, even this morning, I might use those words interchangeably. And so you may have grown up in a church that had, had more uh, ordinances or more sacraments than that. If you grew up Roman Catholic, for instance, uh, you probably had seven sacraments that you observed. Um, but in the, in the Protestant tradition of which Disciples Church is a part, uh, we recognize two ordinances baptism and the Lord's Supper. So what is an ordinance? An ordinance is simply this. It's the idea that when we partake in particular physical elements, they are indicative of a spiritual reality. That the physical elements in which we partake with these ordinances are indicative of a spiritual reality, that there's a spiritual connection. And so with the Lord's Supper, which we'll address next week, uh, when we come to the table together as the church and we partake of the bread and the wine, what we're saying is that those, those elements are representative of something that is very deep and very real spiritually. When we talk about the baptism waters, we're saying that they are representative of something that is uniquely and deeply spiritual. So think of it in these terms. Uh, I've been married now for nearly 12 years, um, and my wife and I uh, were together for a year and a half before that, dating and then engaged, and um, I remember during that time as our love for each other grew and as we got to know each other better, we felt that sense of commitment grow along with our love. As I knew more about her and as I, as I saw her interact in various circumstances and as we had deep conversations, my heart was turned even more towards her, and ultimately that culminated with our wedding. And I remember as we stood in front of my father-in-law who uh, married us, I remember as we, as we stood there, we, we had the old um, wedding vows, the traditional wedding vows, uh, and there was the line, with this ring, I thee wed. Now what happens in that moment? What happened in the moment when I slid that ring onto my wife's finger? Had my commitment level to her changed in any meaningful sense? Perhaps not. But what I was doing in that moment is I was making a public declaration of my commitment to her and my love for her. And so that ring had substantial value. It had sentimental value. It had, it had value connected to our relationship, connected to our commitment one to another, connected to the fact that there was something deep happening behind it. And in a very similar sense, when we observe the ordinances that the Bible instructs us of, what we're saying is that, the, is that in the words of the, the theologian uh, James Boyce, an ordinance, in, in an ordinance, the sign is secondary, outward, and visible, but the reality is primary, inward, and invisible. That when we come to the Lord's table or we partake in baptism, we are indicating a deep spiritual reality. And in baptism in particular, the water points to identification with Christ by faith. In other words, baptism is a visible demonstration of the reality of our salvation, though it does nothing inherently to impart salvation itself. See, baptism historically within the context of the church is interesting because it's one of the few things that binds together nearly all Christian traditions. There's a couple of odd outliers um, in Christian history, but, but nearly all Christian denominations and faiths are united by their belief in water baptism. 
And so one might assume, naturally, if you don't know a lot about the history of the church and if you're not familiar with the idea of denominations and and particular Christian traditions, one might assume that that commonality uh, is something that really draws us together as Christians. But the truth is there are few things within within Christianity that we hold to and believe that are more divisive or contentious than the Christian view on baptism. I mean, in some traditions, the view of baptism is that it's very mystical, that it, that it, that it imparts uh, grace in a very practical sense, maybe even imparting salvation. And in other traditions, it's a very practical view of baptism, that this is just an initiation into a group, that it's merely a sign and nothing else. But I like the words that Augustine used to describe the sacraments. Augustine, writing in the first few centuries after the church wrote this, he said, sacraments are the visible words of God. That in these visible portrayals of the gospel, of the Lord's Supper and of baptism, the gospel that we proclaim is demonstrated. It seems that the only thing that Christians hold in common is that baptism should be observed and that it should involve water. And so my guess is even if we were to have uh, everyone in this room, if we were to give you all a half sheet of paper and just write down what is it that you believe about baptism, and as you were to begin to write, my guess is that we would have probably as many views and nuances and slight differences in our belief about baptism as there are people in this room. I mean, if I specified who is it that ought to be baptized, or when is it that someone ought to be baptized, or how should someone be baptized, Why is someone baptized? What does baptism accomplish? If we were to begin to explore those questions, we would realize very quickly that there's a broad diversity in our beliefs as individual people. And so what we're going to do in this morning is we are not going to be exhaustive because I would keep you here all day. I mean, I was telling somebody before the service, just in the study that I did this last week, I probably had enough material for three or four sermons. That's not an exaggeration. I could go for three or four sermons um, just on this topic of baptism, and even that would just begin to scratch the surface of the depth of this topic. But what I want to do is, is look at an overview scripturally. So in order for us to discuss these things, I think the most effective way to do it is chronologically. Because even though baptism is a New Testament ordinance, and even though it's established in the New Testament, it has significance historically for believers and for Jews in the Old Testament. Because if you go back and you begin to read accounts of the Pentateuch, what you find very quickly is ceremonial washings. There are these ceremonial cleansings that Jews in particular observe. And so if a Jew were to come in contact with something that was considered unclean, maybe an unclean animal or an unclean person, someone with leprosy, or if they were to come in contact with swine or something like that, there would be this particular way that they would wash themselves to demonstrate their cleanness there's particular instructions given about how, how they were to wash and, and what they were to do. And so they would go down to the river and they would begin to wash themselves. And, and in doing so, what they were demonstrating is, I was once unclean and now I am clean again. And as that, as that behavior and as that process proliferated, it was extended ultimately to Gentiles. So that if there was a Gentile who decided to become a follower of God and wanted to follow uh, the practices of Judaism, that Gentile would undergo ritual cleansing. So at this time, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to follow God and you would present yourself to the priest and say, I, I want to be a follower of the one true God, what, what ought I do? And there would be a list of instructions of things that you needed to do in order to be a, become a faithful Jew. But among them was taking yourself down to the river 
and washing yourself ceremonially. A picture of cleansing, a picture of cleanness. It was an initiation, a sign that you were heading in an entirely different direction, that you were embracing a new worldview. And we know historically for the church that there was additional significance that was added in the intertestamental period, which just means in the portion of Scripture between the Old and the New Testament, that there were several Jewish communities that adapted the practice of baptism for different purposes. And in particular, there was a a community called the Qumran community, and what these people believed was uh, very much focused on the end times. It was uh, very much focused on the apocalypse. And so what they were doing in their baptism is they would go down to the river or down to the lake, they would clean themselves up, they would pursue the ceremonial cleansing, and it was all in preparation for the Messiah that was to come. But everything changes dramatically. When John the Baptist or John the Baptizer comes on the scene. Because what John the Baptizer does in those early chapters of the New Testament is absolutely foreign to the Jews. They had a very narrow context of what baptism meant, and it, and it was exclusively these ceremonial cleansings. But when John comes on the scene, everything changes because why would a Jew need to be baptized? These were people who were already followers of the law. They already observed the law. They'd already lived lives that were holy and righteous by the instruction of the Old Testament. But what John did was unique. It was set apart because he wasn't preaching ceremonial self-cleansing. John was the one baptizing people. Now you had somebody outside of yourself who was performing this ordinance, baptizing other people, And he wasn't doing it for the purpose of self-cleansing, but he was baptizing them based on their profession of repentance. And all of a sudden, this picture begins to change. To use Augustine's language, the picture that we're given, the, the vision of words begins to mean something entirely different. And most notably, we find that difference in the baptism of Jesus himself. So here's what it says in Matthew chapter 3. You can turn there with me if you like. Otherwise, I'll read it out loud for you. We'll work through several scriptures this morning. But this is the biblical account of the baptism of Jesus, and here's what it says. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And this exchange is magnificent because John the baptizer comes onto the scene proclaiming the coming Christ, proclaiming that the Messiah is on his way. We're told that he was a biblical forerunner of Christ, that as he came onto the scene, he was preaching and proclaiming that the Messiah was at hand. And he is preaching and proclaiming that Jesus is in fact that Messiah. So understand what that means. John believes that Jesus is the savior of the people. He believes that Jesus has come to accomplish and fulfill all that was given in the Old Testament. And yet here comes Jesus himself to be baptized by John. And John does exactly what any of us would have done if we'd have seen Jesus coming to us for baptism. He says, what in the world are you talking about? You ought to be baptizing me. Why would I baptize you, Jesus? 
If this baptism is a baptism of repentance, Jesus had nothing to repent of. And Jesus' answer is, let it, be, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Literally, Jesus is saying, this is necessary for me to do in order for me to do the right thing before God. Jesus insists on being baptized in order to be faithful to what God expects. Now, this is one of the branches that we could take and spend the entire rest of the sermon just talking about this because this, has, this passage is loaded with theological implications. But what I want to draw out of here just very quickly is two quick things. First, Jesus was baptized as an identification with us in his humanity. And here's what I mean by that. So it says that he was to fulfill all the righteousness. And so Jesus later on several occasions says, I've set the pattern so that you can follow my example. I've, I've done these things now. Go do as I have done. And so not only did his baptism accomplish his identification with us as human beings, but here's maybe the bigger point that I want you to draw away. It was also his consecration to obey the Father. It was his consecration to obey the Father. I mean, do you understand that this is the moment where Jesus' public ministry begins? That everything Jesus is going to do in the remaining three years of his life prior to his death and resurrection, everything he's going to do is informed by this moment. Because in this moment where he's baptized, we're told that he was, he, that, that, that he was put under the water and that as he came up again, a dove, which is the Holy Spirit, descended on him and God declared that Jesus was his son. I mean, at this moment, you have one of the most poignant demonstrations of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit that you find in all of Scripture. And Jesus' baptism here becomes a picture of the very gospel that he was going to accomplish. So Paul touches on this idea in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, where he writes this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So that as Jesus Christ was was being laid down in that water and pulled back out. And as John finished baptizing him, it was a picture of the very gospel that he was going to accomplish, his own death and resurrection. And what Paul is going to say in Romans 6 is, in the very same way, when we are baptized, it is a picture, a demonstration, a visual way to see that we were dead in Christ, that we died with him, that all of our sins, past, present, and future, died with Jesus Christ on that cross, that when he declared on the cross once and for all, it is finished. He was declaring that who you were prior to knowing him is a person who is dead and hanging on a tree. And thank God he didn't leave us in that forgiven but dead state. But that he then imparted new life through the power of his resurrection and that we were raised up with him. What he's saying is salvation which is made possible by Jesus' death and resurrection, is ultimately what's pictured in baptism. 
And what Paul is going to say in Romans chapter 6 and what Acts chapter 2 implies and what Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9 demonstrate and what 1 Peter chapter 5 is going to, or 1 Peter chapter 3 rather, is going to declare is that my life in Christ, for those who are believers, your life is inseparable from the life of Christ. Let me just tell you for a minute why that's a beautiful and amazing thing. It's because what it means is that when God the Father looks at you, he does not see you apart from Christ. And when he sees Christ, he sees you. I mean, think about the implications of that. Even for those of you who are believers, who are Christians, who've been believers for many, many years, it is a It is a stunning thing for us to be reminded of the truth that when God looks at me, he doesn't see a failure and he doesn't see a sinner and he doesn't see a screw-up and he doesn't see a mistake. He sees the very life of his own son. That my life is interwoven with that of Christ. See, the truth is we can't underestimate the importance of the example that Christ set in that moment or what his baptism represented. And practically, just imagine how hard it would be to convince someone to be baptized if Jesus hadn't. Jesus, in his humility, paved the way for the church to follow. Not only in the picture of baptism, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's how incredible this picture extends. I mean, if you continue to read uh, in the book of John, and John's account of it in particular, if you read John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, it says that Jesus went off into the countryside with the disciples, and while he was there, he taught. And what we're told is that as he taught the disciples, at least part of what he was teaching them was about baptism, because we find out in John chapter 4 that the disciples went from that place and were baptizing others. And John John chapter 4 is going to go go so far as to specifically call out the fact that Jesus was not the one baptizing people, but his disciples were. And here's why I bring this up. This is an aside, but I think it's one worth taking. Here's why it's important. Imagine if Jesus had baptized people. Imagine the chain of events that that would have created in the life of his followers. Because what they would have begun immediately to do is compare compare their baptisms. And it's what you find later in the church where people say, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. People are making their declarations of who they are and they're standing in Christianity by their teacher. And the same thing would have happened if Jesus would have begun to baptize them. So here's, here's ultimately why this is important. Several years ago, I remember having a conversation with a woman um, who came in, at least in some sense of distress, because she, she shared the story that she had come to faith in Jesus Christ and that she'd been baptized at a church. Um, and, and the particular pa- pastor who um, baptized her later went on to walk away from the faith. And I remember just having the conversation with her and hearing how struck and how scared she was by the idea that the person who had baptized her walked, walked away from faith. And one of the questions that she had is, did my baptism actually count? Did it count if the person who baptized me ended up walking away from the faith? And so she, begun to, she had begun to put all kinds of weight onto the person who had baptized her. But here's the lesson of John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. The example of Jesus and of John reminds us that the significance of baptism is not in the one who baptizes, but it is in the one in whose name you are baptized. 
Your hope as a believer, your confidence as a Christian, the assurance of your salvation, the sign of your baptism, the significance of those things is not primarily in the person who baptized you. It is primarily in the person of Jesus Christ. That is our confidence. That is our hope. And what does this lead Jesus to ultimately in Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18, the Great Commission, which many of us could quote by heart. He says this, and it says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus' final instruction to the disciples before his ascension, at least in part, is about baptism. And here's the reason why that has significance. And I realize that all of this is on background and you're waiting for the application. It's coming, but just follow with me here. There's so much going on. I don't want you to miss. Here's the reason why all of that is significant. It's because in Jesus' final instruction, if you look at the actual grammatical makeup of what he says, and I'm losing some of you already, but just follow with me here. This is important. If you look at what he says, if you were to literally translate Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, here's what it says. Therefore, having gone, disciple all the nations, baptizing them. And the only word that is a command in the Great Commission is the command to baptize. It is the command of Jesus that the church baptize and that those who follow him be baptized. So understand, if the instruction we're given in Matthew 28 is based on the fact that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ, then the command and the instruction of the believer is to obey because all authority is due him. And because if he is our Savior and our Lord, we want to do what he says. So how does baptism come about? It's a matter of mind, heart, and will. And this leads us to Acts chapter 2. That was all intro. Acts 2, verse 11, here's what it says. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Now, to put this in perspective, if you don't remember from a couple of weeks ago, uh, this is the time uh, of the year where it's it's Passover. And and at this particular point, um, this is is when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples in the upper room. They leave the upper room. They go out into the crowded streets where all of the masses are gathered. And they begin to speak in foreign tongues. And so, notice what it says. Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own own tongues, the mighty works of God. All of a sudden, the disciples know languages they didn't know before. And they begin to preach the power and the might of God, the amazing works of Jesus Christ. They begin to preach the message of salvation to people in languages that they did not know. And everyone who is gathered and everyone who hears is amazed and perplexed. In fact, they go on to say, are these guys drunk? How is this even possible? And they began to ask, what does this mean? And Peter then begins a sermon in verse 14. And here's the reason all of this is important. Do you understand that our faith is not primarily an ecstatic response to an emotional stimuli? In other words, we are not primarily emotional in our faith. Emotion plays into our faith undoubtedly, and we cannot dismiss it as a lot of people would try to do. But understand that 
in this passage is these people were amazed and perplexed. They wanted to know what was going on. And what does Peter do? He begins to preach. He starts with an explanation, not just with an experience. And Peter's sermon was dependent on historical eyewitness accounts. I mean, think of the actual language that he uses as he speaks to these people. He says, this Jesus, and he explains who Jesus is, and these people knew the name of Jesus Christ. He says, this Jesus, whom you killed by virtue of your sin, by virtue of the things that you've done, by virtue of your, of your uh, inability to obey the law and your disobedience to the instruction of God. This Jesus who is God, who is the Messiah, this Jesus you killed and God raised him up. Supernaturally brought back from the dead after three days. And, Paul, and Peter rather goes on to say, and not only did he do all of those miraculous things, but then he sends the Holy Spirit. And that's why we're able to preach in your languages. And that's why miracles are happening. And that's why people are, are turning their lives over in droves because they're being so struck by the power of the gospel through the application of the Holy Spirit in their hearts that amazing, miraculous things are happening. And they listened carefully to the words of Peter until it says in Acts 2.37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. through the mind to the heart. As they heard the gospel and as their lives were put under the microscope of what the gospel declares, their own hearts and tensions were revealed. And it didn't stop with a mental understanding and intellectual assent. But soon the very center of their being was being changed. They experienced conviction, mentally knowing where they had violated the law of God, mentally knowing what they had done to Christ, mentally knowing their need for a savior, but then this conviction grows deeper, it cuts to the heart. This is a gut level response to the truth that they had heard. That they were weighing out the truth and that it hit them so hard because of the power of the Holy Spirit in that place. Second half of verse 37. And he said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the result of all of these things result of all of this is that those who God called through his Holy Spirit, verse 39, received his word. And when it says they received his word, what it's saying is what we talked about last week, that they received salvation, that they were converted in that moment, that their lives changed and their minds changed and their hearts turned and their will shifted. And not only did their hearts and their minds and their lives change in this moment, not only did they experience conversion and experience salvation, but their will was changed to the point where they followed the Lord in baptism as a demonstration of the salvation that they had received, as a public confession of their faith in Jesus Christ. So again, quoting Boyce, here's what he wrote. It does not, uh, rather, uh, baptism does not make us the Lord's, 
but it is a sign that identifies us as belonging to him. It is our way of telling the world we are not our own. That we have been bought with a price, that we have been identified with Jesus. In other words, apart from a faith dependence on Jesus Christ, baptism carries no significance. It's no different than jumping in a pool or standing under a shower head. But notice it says they listened carefully to Peter. Their minds and their hearts were changed and they followed. See, when one places their faith in Jesus Christ, baptism stands as a declaration of where your faith lies. That baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. That there's been all kinds of transformation happening under the surface. And that this is now the public declaration that you are not your own. And notice what Peter says here, and this is repeated all throughout the New Testament. What he says is that baptism is so integral to the Christian experience and a Christian identity that Peter mentions it in the same breath as repentance. And you find this over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. These two things go hand in hand. So understand this. The Bible is not giving this as optional instruction. This is not just a good idea. It's not just something that is maybe a good thing for a person to do. Nor is it a special designation for super Christians. It is the expected course for every believer. It is the Bible's presumption about what Christians are going to do. So this is not a meaningless symbol, it is a magnificent display of obedience. Because it demonstrates the incalculable way that your life has been forever changed. It's an identification with and a declaration of new identity in Jesus Christ. And understand that 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 sign and that reminder is not only for the external watching world, though it is for them, but it is also for the individual who's being baptized, a standing physical reminder of the transformation that's taken place in their life, and it is also a sign given to the church. But notice, baptism is only received by those who first received the word. So at least in terms of what the Bible says explicitly, all we ever see is people who are first receiving the word and then following the Lord in baptism. And so I would just invite you, this is one of those areas that we don't have time to talk about at length this morning, but I would invite you just to look through the examples throughout the New Testament. Look at Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9. I mean, look at at the examples that, that follow throughout the epistles. It is the normal course of action in the New Testament church to be baptized uh, as believers after they have professed faith in Christ. In fact, it's one of the ways that you proclaim your faith in Jesus Christ. And look what it says finally in verse 41. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So both in this text in Acts, in in the Great Commission, and throughout the New Testament, baptism was the means by which someone entered membership in the church. And there are unique examples at various points, particularly, uh, or unique exceptions, rather, throughout the uh, Bible, particularly in the book of Acts. But baptism is nearly always done within the context of the local church, and it is the primary means by which someone enters membership in the local church. 
So understand this. The Bible does not know of a disconnected Christian from a local church. That whole idea would have been foreign to the original church. How are you a Christian apart from a congregation? The Bible assumes these things as well as instructing us, uh, instructing us in them. And so I realize there's a lot of information this morning, and I realize we've just begun to scratch the surface of what baptism is. And this sermon is also unique for me in a lot of ways, primarily in that I feel like it's more of a lecture. I mean, you probably feel that way as well. But what I wanted to do was put in front of you the example that we have throughout the Bible of the role baptism has in the life of the believer and the life of the church and invite you to search it out. Because my conviction looking at these verses and looking at the whole of the New Testament is that the Bible assumes that believers are going to follow in baptism. It's instruction, it's invitation, it's obedience, it's identification, it's commissioning. It's the means by which the invisible church is made visible. And I realize that all of us in this room are somewhere in this process that the people in Acts chapter 2 found themselves. So there are likely people here who don't know what they believe about Jesus at all or who are harboring very severe and real doubts about who Jesus Christ is. Is he real? Does his life actually matter? Is he really God? If he is God, what does that actually mean for me? How does it affect my life? How does it affect how I live? How does it affect how I believe who I am? And there are probably many others in this room who, who are followers of Jesus Christ and who haven't been baptized. Hear this passage this morning as an invitation to follow in obedience, to be part of that visible demonstration not only for the sake of others, but for the sake of yourself and for the sake of the church. For the sake of declaring what it is we know to be true, of following the example of Jesus Christ and following the instruction of Jesus Christ, of submitting ourselves to his lordship and his instruction. And maybe this would be the morning where like the early church, you come to a saving faith. And that is the faith that is portrayed in baptism. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for texts that make us think and make us ask questions. And Lord, I realize with no uncertainty in my heart that there are people in this room who have all sorts of questions around these things. Because there is so much that we just don't have time to dive into in the course of one morning. But Lord, I pray first of all that we would be people people who, as, as those having received the word, are now devoted to the study of the word. I pray, Lord, that our study on this topic wouldn't end here, but that this would be the introduction. God, we've seen that it's the normal practice. We've seen that it's the ex expected course of people who are followers of Jesus Christ. But God, as you work into hearts and lives, the meaning that you would, that you would work, the applications that you would draw, the convictions that you would bring, God, I pray that we would be a people who are sensitive to those leadings. I pray, God, that you would help us to be people who are gracious regarding these things, realizing, realizing that there is um, lack of clarity on some of these issues, that there's room for difference of opinion among brothers and sisters. 
And so, Lord, help us to be gracious in our conversations with one another, in our conversations with other believers of other congregations. Help us to seek out your word. Help us to follow you in obedience. Help us to be faithful, God, to the instruction you put before us. And so, God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the picture that baptism is of death through your death on the cross, of new life through your resurrection and of the hope that we have awaiting us in glory. And we thank you for all of these things, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.